Father, thank you for this time that we have together to sing, to give, to pray, to worship you in the word. We ask that you draw our attention to yourself, that we would respond to you and to your word, that your spirit would work in our hearts to accomplish your will. We need you and want you. In Jesus' name, amen. In most fields of study or trade, there are built-in systems of training. In the Navy, more seasoned sailors mentor less seasoned sailors. It's called a mentor-mentee relationship. In trades, such as the trade of an electrician, one younger man or woman with the skills and understanding of electricity would go alongside of a more seasoned electrician and become their apprentice. In the field of medicine, one would complete their study in medicine and then they would go on to become a resident and then finally a fellow and then move on to their actual title of MD or doctor. These steps along the way are to translate information into practice. Information into practice. This is what God has given us in, in the world. And, and if you look at it in the Christian life, God has built the system right in to the Christian life as well. God has built in a system we call discipleship for the practical application of divine truth into the life of a believer. It's the way that we study divine truth and then see how it functions in a day-to-day -day life. We see this discipleship concept prescribed and illustrated and described throughout the scriptures. And so what we want to do this morning is look at one of those passages of scripture where discipleship is illustrated and described. Now, this passage has other concepts that are there, and we're going we're to try to incorporate our understanding of discipleship into the, the intent of the passage, because this passage does describe and illustrate discipleship, but it has a different tenor of its first primary intention. So we're going to see its first and primary intention along with understanding how it teaches us about the biblical process of discipleship. So Paul, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, gives the church at least four evidences evidences that they belong to God. And here's how we know it's, that's what he's talking about. In verse 4, he, he gives us a very clear statement. Look what it says in verse 4. For we know, by this we have knowledge, by this we have confidence, for by this we know, brothers loved by God, that we have, that he has chosen us. For we know that he has chosen us is the, the main element of the sentence. And as you look into verse 5, he uses this word, because. So the, the intent of the passage is very clear. God, Paul, wants the Thessalonian church and us, because we're reading the letter, he wants us to know we are chosen by him, and here are the evidences by which we know that we are chosen by God. He says, For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen us because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and with full conviction. Now, the Greek text has not a period there at conviction. It has a word that means just as. 
Your New King James has that. I think your King James will, will recognize that. In our ESV, it puts an end to the sentence, and it starts a new one. It really is lacking in this particular area. It should go on to say, and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. In other words, that full conviction that they had uh, in the ministry of the Apostle Paul came by the reputation that they displayed in front of them. So, you know, we, we've all heard the expression... You can talk the talk, but you also need to walk the walk. The concept is if, if you bring the gospel to someone and it doesn't, isn't displayed, it's only just a spoken gospel, it doesn't have near the impact as the gospel that is displayed in addition to explained. Displayed and explained. So we communicate the gospel and then we dis, uh, demonstrate the gospel. He's showing us that here, that the, the testimony of the gospel flourished because of the evidence of that gospel ministry. Verse 6, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. This passage gives us evidences that we belong to God, evidences that we've been chosen by God. He gives us four of them, at least. You could probably come up with some more, but the basic structure lists for us four evidences of this. First of all, we have embraced a powerful gospel. We have embraced a powerful gospel. This is the first evidence of belonging to God. Because listen to what he says in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, He's not discounting that it came in word because the word comes with power. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But it also came in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction, just as you know what kind of men we were, we proved to be among you for your sake. And so first of all, we have embraced a powerful gospel. The gospel comes with the power of the word, first of all. It comes with the power of the word. In Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12, the Bible says this, the word of God is quick or alive, and powerful. It means it's dynamic. It, it, it's impactful. It's quick and powerful. It divides asunder between soul and spirit and all kinds of things. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is alive and powerful. It's so powerful it even tells us about our own intentions. It cuts through the weeds of our misinclined actions. God's word is powerful enough to do that. When the word comes, it comes with the power of the word. When the gospel comes, it comes with the power of the gospel. It's alive and powerful. Take a look at chapter 2 of book, the book of 1 Thessalonians, verse 13. He says this, And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. Or, you could also read it this way, which is at work in you who believe. God's word is powerful, and it works in the one who believes. 
God's word comes not just in word, it comes in a powerful word. The gospel comes with the power of the word. The Bible says in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why? For it's the power of God unto what? Salvation! It changes everything. It takes me from the verge of hell and destruction and judgment, and it brings me into life eternal. It's the power of God into salvation for everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For by it, the person who is of faith is justified. It says the just shall live by his faith. Not only does the gospel come with the power of the word, it comes with the power of the spirit. This is so vitally important. Listen, you and I, we, we memorize scripture. We know the word. We've been studying the word. And we go and we, and we want to tell it to someone. And if we're opening that door and we're forcing the, the scene, well, we have the power of the word to go on but we might not have the power of the Spirit working. We may have forced open a door to shove a message from us, that's about God, onto someone, and it really wasn't the Spirit at all. What we need to see is the Spirit at work, because when the Spirit brings forth the Word, there is a result. Listen to what it says in Titus chapter 3. Take a look over there, if you would. Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, the Bible says this, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. See, when the gospel goes forth with the Spirit, the Spirit has the ability to give life to a person, to take them from spiritually dead to spiritually alive. A spiritually dead person can't respond to the word. Did you know that? Did you realize that dead people don't do anything? Have you ever seen like a dead bee on the side of the road like do we ever oh my word the dead bee is gonna get me no you don't you recognize it's a dead bee or like a dead snake what difference does that make i'm not gonna be afraid of a dead snake it can't do anything well so also was a dead spiritually person they can't respond to god's word so the spirit comes along and gives life gives life this is what the spirit does so though it's not only the power of the word coming forth it's the power of the spirit coming forth and giving life to dead flesh to dead spiritual bones. Take a look over at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 for a second. The gospel comes with the power of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, vitally important, and, and, and I, would, I would challenge you, friend, you're sitting here and you, you say, I, I've read the Bible, I, really don't, I don't get it, it doesn't make any sense to me, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't do anything for me. What I'd say to you is, well, there may be a reason for that. It may be that it's because the Spirit has not given you life that you desperately need, and He's not bringing that to operation in your life. So 1 Corinthians chapter 2, start reading in verse 9 with me. The Bible says this, But as it is written, What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love Him, these things God has revealed to us. How? Through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person, which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God. No one comprehends the thoughts of God. Try it one more time, ready? No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we, believers, have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. 
the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for the things of God are foolishness to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned, spiritually of or related to the Spirit. They are revealed or understood by the Spirit. So when Paul says, listen, we know, brothers loved by God, that God has chosen you. Why? Because, first of all, the word when it came to you didn't come just in word, but it came in power and in the Holy Spirit. So it, the word itself, the gospel is the power of God. The, the Spirit of God brings forth the power of God to understand. Thirdly, and we started to make mention of it when I was doing the read-through of, of our text, the gospel comes with the power of testimony. The gospel comes with the power of testimony. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, if you tell someone your, your story of salvation, that will save them. No, that is not the kind of testimony we're talking about, though that's a good thing to do. I'm not discounting you telling someone how you could say That's a wonderful thing. You should. But that's not the power. The power of testimony is when they received the word, they didn't just receive the word alone, but the power of the word and the power of the spirit with full conviction. Remember, just as you know what manner of men we prove to be among you. In other words, that full conviction was that that gospel truth was embodied. It didn't just come out of our lips and like that was the end of it. It was displayed in the way that we carried ourselves. It was displayed with the kinds of words we would use and the kind of look on our face when we saw difficulty and the kinds of ways we would, we would aid those who were troubled or care for those who were the outcast. It, it's displayed in one way or another. The power of testimony. Now, Jesus had something to say about this. If you, if you have your Bibles, turn to John chapter 13. Jesus had something to say about the power of this kind of testimony. In John 13, you'll remember they were in the upper room. Jesus had told them he was going to go away. He was going to suffer. He was going to die. He was going to be raised again. They really didn't quite comprehend it, but they were, they were struggling with this. And, and he washed their feet, you'll remember. He took out the basin and the cloth and he girded himself. And then he washed their feet. You remember the whole scene. Listen to how he concludes that section in verse 34. A new commandment I give to you. This doesn't sound new. That you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see how the testimony of action has a result. The testimony of action has a result. When, when people can see God's love in us, they can recognize that this is not natural. This is not the love that comes from the source of flesh. There's something supernatural going on, and people will know you're my disciples if you love one another. There's a power of testimony. Head back to 1 Thessalonians, please. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. There's power that comes with the word, with the gospel itself. There's power that comes. It comes with the spirit. There's power that comes. It comes with the testimony of God working in a person's life. In 1 Thessalonians, he gives us a very specific answer to how this was evidenced in the lives of the Thessalonian church. These believers in Thessalonica, it says in verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 3, I remember before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope. So there was a demonstration in the lives of the Thessalonian Christians, these people that called upon the name of the Lord and were saved, there was, there was a demonstration of God's working in their lives. It, it goes even further. You remember at the end of this text, he talks about the fact that, you know, not only has the word of God sounded forth in Macedonia and Achaia, that, that region that they lived in, it was even 
further than that. It was amazing. It says, everywhere we go, we meet people that have passed through Thessalonica that tell us about our relationship with you. We, we're meeting someone in another region, and we try to tell them about Jesus. And the person says, oh yeah, I know about you. I know about this Jesus. Those people in Thessalonica, they told me all about him. How did they know? Verse 9, for they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, and how you, Thessalonians, turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. You know what it's telling us? These folks turned away from everything that they knew that used to be the, the thing that they would grab, on, grab onto and hold onto. This is what I used to feel secure in. Not any longer. I have something new, something better, something great because that's dead and this is alive. This is so alive not only am I willing to serve this living and true God, but I'm waiting for him. I know he's coming. It's not just a service unto nothing. It's a service until he comes because I know he's coming. I know that there's more to this than just this life. I'm not just holding on to some good luck charm so that I hope that karma will be my friend and everything will go fine in my life and my wife won't get sick and my kids won't get sick and, and, and I'll have a car to drive and, and a house that's great. It's not about karma and good luck charms. It's about a living God, one who lives again and one who's coming to get me. This is the kind of testimony they had. Their whole life was marked by it. So much so that Paul met disciples that had been made as they passed through Thessalonica. Now listen, there's a reason why it was so prominent. Thessalonica, that, that was, a, it was a trade route. It was, a, it was a main road that went right through Thessalonica. So people, when they went anywhere from one side of the Thessalonians to the other, they had to pass through their city. And when they came, they got a message. A message of the word. A message that came with power. A message that came in the spirit. And a message that had a life that backed it up. You see, we've embraced a powerful, fruitful gospel. I, I want you to sit and I want you to think. We, we've got to consider this text. Is that the gospel you've embraced? Has it impacted you to that level that you don't hold on to things that are going to perish for your security? Is it your job? Is it your retirement? Is it your house? Is it your savings? Is that what you're holding on to? That's not going to sustain you. That's only for this life. This life will soon be over. Then what will you have? But I'm living, living for more than this life because this life is short. Eternity is long. We know that we are God's children because we've embraced a powerful, fruitful gospel. Secondly, the reason that we know we belong to God, another evidence, is we have become followers. We have become followers. Look at what it says in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. He gives two areas in which they became followers. They first followed human examples, Secondly, they followed divine example. First, human examples, then divine example. And maybe, you, you know, I don't think in order of importance. I think first we follow the divine example, and then we follow human examples. But he's not listing it in order of importance. Now, you'll remember as you have panned through the scriptures, the New Testament, that in two times in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul urged the church to imitate him. Hey, as you see me following Christ, follow me. What you'll notice is the author of Hebrews also urges his readers to imitate those who exhibit a fruitful faith and patience. Follow those who, who through faith and patience inherit the promises, what he says in Hebrews chapter 6. I believe it's verse 12. 
Uh, you'll notice as you read through the book of Philippians, you come to chapter 3, and, and this, this challenge is, is issued. He says in Philippians 3.17, Brothers, join in imitating me, and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Listen, folks, it is foolish and prideful to seek to live our lives outside of the Christian community that God has called us to. It is foolish and prideful to live our lives outside of the Christian community that God has called us to. To think that I can sustain my spiritual life all on my own because I really know exactly how to do everything is really prideful. Oh, I don't need the church. The church is just filled with hypocrites. Oh, really? Did you say you're a Christian? Well, yeah. Are you in church? No. Well, Christians, they kind of have been called out of the world and placed into the body of Christ. That's a church. So you call yourself a Christian, you don't go to church. That's called hypocrisy. Hello? Seriously, no, uh, seriously this, is, this is what you hear people say, oh, I don't go to church. I love Jesus and I love the Bible. I just don't love church. Well, uh, you really can't break it up that way because did you know, ready? Did you know that God, oh, I'll go even better. Jesus calls the church his body. You can't love his being and hate his body. It doesn't work. It's hypocrisy. So it's foolish and prideful to seek to live our lives outside of the Christian community. God has called us out of darkness. He's called us out of the world. He's called us out of our selfish small world. And he's called us into the church, into his kingdom. So much of what the New Testament talks about is the way that the local church functions. If you read from, from Romans through Jude, and you keep reading it over and over, what you're seeing is, is church instruction. And if you don't involve yourself in the community of the church, what is that? How do you do it? How do you function in the church and not be part of it? What Paul is saying here in 1 Thessalonians is that I know that you're chosen. I know you're God's people because, first of all, the, the word came with power and changed your lives, okay? Secondly, you follow human examples. Now, you don't follow them when they go off the rails. You don't follow them when they deviate from revealed truth. But as they demonstrate godliness from the text of Scripture, you follow them. This is, this is a, an authenticating mark of true discipleship, an authenticating mark of being owned by God. And then he says, and of the Lord. You became Imitators of us and of the Lord. So this followers of God. Now the Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1 that we as dear children we're to imitate God. We're to imitate God as dear children. All right. Does that mean that we can go around raising people from the dead? Well, wouldn't that be imitating God? Well, I, I suppose. But that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about imitating God so far as um, those attributes of God that are simply divine, like his divine wisdom, he knows everything, or his divine omnipresence, he's everywhere at once, or his omnipotence, that he's all-powerful and can do anything he wants. That's not the kind of imitation we're talking about. We're talking about how it's described in Scripture. As you look at the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, what is God describing in Galatians 5, 22 and 23? He's describing his character. This is why it's the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit's work looks like this. You know what it looks like? It looks like God. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. You see, the whole goal of the fruit of the Spirit is that we demonstrate who God is in our home, in the church, in the workplace, 
in the marketplace, with our friends, with our family. See, that, that's really the clearest goal of the Christian life is to reflect the character of God. The Thessalonians demonstrate that they're God's people. How? The, the gospel came. It was a fruitful, powerful gospel. And after the, 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 the gospel came, they followed the examples that God had given them, both in the apostles and in the Lord himself. And so there was a demonstration of godliness. There's a third, a third evidence that we belong to God in this text. And it's a natural, it kind of naturally flows out of it. We have become examples. We have become examples. Look at verse 7. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, again, there, there's, a, there's a way we can read this. You can, you can read it this way. So that you became examples, plural, individually, you became examples to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Or you can read it the way it's in this text, and it says, so that you corporately, as a church, became a corporate example to all believers in Macedonia and Achaia. It's actually difficult to tell which of those is a proper, a better reading than the other. The, the difference isn't a whole lot. Right? So if you're individually an example to others or we are corporately as a body because of our individual united, uh, being united together, being an one corporate example or individual examples, it really the, the difference isn't great. But I will tell you that if it is supposed to be singular, if it is supposed to be singular as opposed to plural, how can you fulfill this mandate separated from the local church? The answer is you wouldn't be able to. And so it's an important concept because of their willingness to follow both human and divine influence, they stood out to other believers as examples of the Christian way of life. Did you realize this? This is important. Did you realize as part of the Great Commission, you cannot say that you have really become a full disciple until you are involved in disciple-making? Did you know that? There are far too many Christians that are satisfied, at least you know, they call themselves Christians, they're too satisfied with, okay, I got the gospel, I'm saved, I'm, I'm headed for heaven. That's enough for me. If I were you, if you were in that situation, that you say, well, okay, I'm saved and that's enough for you, I would really sit back and ponder whether the New Testament would give you confidence in your current standing with the Lord. Because discipleship doesn't end with, okay, I prayed this prayer, I walked down an aisle, I said this thing, I wrote out a, a response card, or I kneeled on a, you know, at the altar, or whatever else you may have done at that conversion moment. Someone who's born again, God holds them up. God causes them to persevere in the faith. God causes them to be sanctified and brings them ultimately to glorification. It's all the work of him. So if we're like content with, yes, I prayed that prayer and I'm good to go, it doesn't sound like what the Bible refers to as someone who's truly trusted Christ. So I would really be cautious there. Look at what it says in Matthew 28. We're going to come right back to, actually, we're going to go somewhere else after that. So take a look at Matthew 28, and then we'll turn to Titus chapter 2 for fun. See, this is called Bible study. We want to know what God has to say. What I have to say is far inferior to what God has to say. So that's why we turn to Scripture to see what God is saying. Matthew chapter 28, our written record of the Great Commission. In verse 18 of Matthew 28, the Bible says this, and Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, including this very command. 
and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you look at that passage of scripture and you consider it authoritative, if you're a Bible student and you know you believe the Bible, then you know it's authoritative. What you understand is you're not done in the discipleship process unless you are giving forth the very message that you have received and investing your life into other people so that they also embrace the gospel and know how to demonstrate the gospel in their lives. So take a pause here, and I want you to just sit back. I want you to think. If you are not involved in discipleship, something is out of place in your life. Who is this passage for? It's for Christians, right? Are you a Christian? This passage is for you, which means you should be being discipled, and you should be discipling someone else. Two roads. There's always someone speaking into your life, and there's always an outlet where you're speaking into someone else's life. Discipleship. You might say, well, why are you talking about this? Well, first of all, it's part of the Christian life. But secondly, yes, there is another motivation in addition to this just being a normal part of Christian life. There's a sign-up sheet in the room on my left and your right about a discipleship ministry. And if your name isn't on that, I'm not saying that you're sinning. I'm just saying you're not doing the right thing. If your name is not on that sign-up sheet, it means you're saying, well, I don't, I'm all set with the discipleship thing. And I'm telling you that the text of Scripture is telling you that's not right. We need to be being discipled, and we need to be discipling others. So to shortchange that, either by not having someone speaking into your life or you not speaking to other people's lives, there's, there's, there's harm taking place to the body of Christ. Take a look with me at another passage of Scripture that really brings it home a little bit further. Titus chapter 2. It's a very strong passage of Scripture here in Titus chapter 2. And when I mean strong, it really articulates this very well. And it calls for older men and women to display the gospel and to actually ingrain in a teaching manner, shoulder to shoulder, not just in a classroom setting, shoulder to shoulder, those that are younger in the faith, the truth. Look at what he says in Titus chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Listen carefully. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good. And so, what does it say? Ah. Notice that it doesn't say at the beginning of verse 3, an older woman. That would, be, that would read this entirely different. If it says an older woman, you could talk about, okay, well, we've got a ladies' Bible study, and we do that. And we like ladies' Bible studies. I commend you to go to it, ladies. Go to the ladies' Bible study if you have the availability to do so. But that's, that's not the end of this because it doesn't say, in older women, woman, teach. It says, older women, plural, teach. Younger women. And it says, verse 4, And so train the young women to love their husbands and children. Train the younger women to be self-controlled. Train the young women to be pure Train the younger women to be working at home. Train the younger women to be kind. Train the younger women to be submissive to their own husbands. What's on the line? What's on the line? Oh, that, that passage has some teeth in it. You know what it says? That the word of God may not be reviled. Now, in other translations, that word is blasphemed. It's a strong word. To not be involved in this lays on the line the potential of us blaspheming God's word. We don't think it's important enough. 
the text of Scripture is calling us to this discipleship process, both to be a follower and an example, to, to be spoken unto and to speak unto. This is the call. We could read further, and it gets just as strong. Verse uh, 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. In other words, there's, there's something else on the line. Look a little further. Verse nine and t- verses 9 and 10. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters. Train them in this, in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering. In other words, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that in everything, listen carefully, they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. Now, that's stating the, the, the teeth of the passage in the positive. If a person yields and is taught, instructed about how to live out the gospel at work, you know what you're doing? Instead of reviling the gospel and the word of God, you're adorning the doctrine of God, our Savior. You're putting it on display. You see, we don't, we're not just gospel people at church. If you're just a gospel person at church, oh, I love to talk about the gospel, love to hear this gospel, love to sing the gospel, but you're not a gospel person at home, something's wrong. You're not a gospel person at work. Are you kidding me? You can't. What, well, you can put it on and put it off? Or is this, is this who you are? Is this the life that God has ingrained into you? Well, this is what the discipleship process is supposed to do. The discipleship process is to, to help us keep each other sharp. In what? Embracing the gospel in every area of our lives because neglect of the gospel in our our everyday life is is a disrepute to the word and to God himself. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, you then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to what? Faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So this is the pattern. It's laid out for us. Every believer is to be involved in discipleship in two directions so that we know how to practice the gospel. Now, we don't have time to turn to all the passages I wanted to. If you want to take a look later, take a look at Ephesians chapter 4. You can write it down. Ephesians chapter 4. Start in verse 7 and read down to verse 16. And what you'll notice is God gave gifts to the church. Then he talks about some of the gifts. Remember, it's apostles and prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. What do those pastors and teachers do? They equip the saints so that the saints do the work of the ministry. How long is it to take place until we're all perfectly mature? That means until Jesus comes, right? So that we're no longer children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, right? That we're to speak the truth in love so that we can cause each other to grow in truth. And then in verse 16, it says, he talks about how we're all tied together by joints and ligaments to our head, which is Christ. And then it tells us that the body is to cause itself to grow. In other words, you, me, we, us, we're to be speaking into one another's lives and to be demonstrating truth in each other's lives so that we're causing each other to grow in our relationship and our embracing of truth in the gospel. Can you think of ways that you have been building up the body of Christ? Well, the main avenue or a main avenue of that is this discipleship process, and so we should be involved in it. See, we're looking at how do we know we're, we're God's children in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 
One, and first of all, because the, the gospel that's come is a powerful gospel. It changes us. And secondly, because we've become followers, both of human examples and of the divine example. And then we've become examples so that other believers in the church, out of the church, can be influenced toward Christ and, and be sustained by the gospel. Finally, final one, and we're only going to spend just a minute here, we have become witnesses. Now, I just want you to notice that being an example to believers came before the witnessing. That does not mean that we don't witness to others until we've been an example to the church, but I do think that does tell us something. It does tell us in the process of following human examples and the divine example and becoming an example to other believers, our testimony, when we bring it forth to the world, has a lot more stickiness to it. There's more depth to it. There's more reality to it. Because I'm not just speaking of some truth that I know and subscribe to. I'm speaking of who God is making me and what I cling to and what gives me real depth and strength. What does it mean to, to live out the gospel? It means to recognize that in my daily life, moment by moment, I am of my own accord useless. That my way, my way is not good enough to get the job done. That in my flesh, I'm not going to become a better husband or a better father. Only in the spirit will I become a better husband and a better father. Only by God's grace will I become a better husband and a better father and a better testimony. Well, it, it kind of comes forth out of this ministering to one another. It, it's so vital to you that you're hearing it. It's coming into your life and it's coming out of your life so that when you describe the truth of the gospel to an unbeliever. It, it, it's really who you are, and it, it's what you really embrace and what you really believe. It, so it has a little bit more stickiness to it. And so as you look at the end of this chapter, we read it a couple of times, wherever, wherever Paul went, he was meeting people that met the Thessalonians. They became a witness. People saw the reality of God's truth in life. And you know, that's the way it goes when we follow God's plan. It's not that we find and manufacture ways to to make a better impact on an unbeliever. It's, I'm just, I'm living for God. I'm living for God, and I'm yielding to his spirit, and I'm reading his word, and I'm praying, and, and I'm listening to the word, and people are speaking the truth of the gospel in my life, and I'm, I'm doing, you know, as God gives me opportunity, I'm speaking it into the lives of others, and then, you know what? He starts to open up doors outside of the church. So that when my gospel goes, it's not my gospel. It's his gospel, and it doesn't go with in word only but it goes in power and in the Holy Spirit and with much assurance, just as they know what manner of men we were among them for Christ's sake. You see what, how it happens? See, this, this whole discipleship process leads us to, to really being a light, to be the salt and the light that God has intended for us to be in the first place. So we think through this passage. How do I know I belong to God. What are the authenticating marks of belonging to God in the passage that we've talked about? Well, first of all, the gospel has produced fruit. Secondly, the gospel has made us followers. Thirdly, the gospel has made us examples. And finally, the gospel has made us witnesses. So this is what God does in the lives of his children. And it makes us sure. It makes us sure that we belong to him. If I don't have any of this stuff going on in my life, and I'm looking at my life, I'm sitting back, and I'm thinking, this is the way you lived for all these years, and then you came in contact with the gospel, and, and now you're living like that again. It's like, where do I stake my claim of hope? On what? 
Oh, our hope is always in Christ and in his word and in what God has done. But with that, he changes our life. He changes our life. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 17, old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new, or the new has come, as it says in the ESV. God changes us, and so it gives us confidence in him. Well, let's take a moment and pray together. Father, so much truth here in these texts of Scripture, both in 1 Thessalonians and in other places that you've revealed to us. We're thankful for that truth. I ask, Father, on behalf of myself and each one here, that by your Spirit we would respond properly to these truths, that we would see the value of your gospel work, that we would see the importance of following those that you've given us as examples in our lives and most importantly, following you, and that you would also burden our hearts to influence others. And we know that through that, you'll have your way, you'll be glorified, you'll lift us up and give us opportunities not only in the lives of believers, but unbelievers as well. Father, we commit these things to you, knowing we are desperate for your help, knowing that we can't make it happen on our own, but knowing that we have some responsibilities to be involved in. And so we pray that you'd enable us to do this by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.